grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Last week, if you were here, I shared with you about the change that took place when I got married. I had to give up some of my freedom I had in being a single bachelor in order to love and honor my wife. And I talked about how that giving up of my way and my desires ended up being a trade I would gladly make all over again. Because being married to my wife was and is it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. That's true. It's, it's, it's real, yeah. I did. It's right here in the notes. It's true. <laughs> Our first two years of marriage, and they were, they were incredible. We were young and we were excited about everything. And we could be spontaneous and go out and travel and go eat and go see a movie, go for a peaceful walk in the park. We could stay up late and sleep in late if we wanted. We could also live pretty cheaply and save our money. Then one day my wife told me she had some news to share. She was pregnant. We were having a baby. And I was so excited. We were so excited. And then said baby arrived. And we quickly discovered that some things were going to change. Saving money, living cheaply, not quite as easy anymore. Going out to nice restaurants, being spontaneous? Nope. And sleeping in was a luxury of the past. Just like getting married, having kids was a trade-in of some of our freedom. We had to give up some of the things we wanted and we liked. It was no longer about my wife and I. It was now about my wife and I and little humans that scream at you. <laughs> Marriage and children are two of the sharpest tools that God has used to sanctify me. When God gave me the gift of a wife and the gift of children, they came with a little note that said in all caps, Micah, life is not about you. And guess what? I needed that message. Because I tended to live like life was all about me. I tended to focus on myself. And guess what else? I found that life is actually better when it's not all about you. The joy that comes from serving my wife and serving my kids, which I'm still very much figuring out, far outweighs any freedom I lost when I made those decisions. So yeah, getting married, having kids, two of the best decisions I've ever made. But you know, we all need to hear that message from time to time. We all need to hear. It's not about you. And God sends us that message in a variety of ways, not just through our families, and that's the message that Paul's been communicating to the Roman church in Romans 14 and 15. This early first century church was beginning to learn something that we all learn at some point in life. When you put sinful people together in the same space with other sinful people, challenges arise. Whether that be a marriage or family or work or school, selfish people act selfishly and conflicts happen. And yes, this includes in the church. Yes, the very place where we're all supposed to love each other and encourage each other and be unified and sing kumbaya. We still deal with conflict. We saw that the past two weeks in Romans 14. This has always been the case. The very first churches to ever exist had conflict. And the conflict they were dealing with at this time that Paul had been addressing concerned how to follow the Old Testament law. Specifically, the laws concerning food and, and the Sabbath. Some Christians chose not to eat meat or drink wine and, and to continue practicing the Jewish holy days, while other Christians felt they didn't need to follow that stuff anymore. So we spent two weeks, the last two weeks, talking about matters of conscience. 
These are issues that are not first-level issues. They're not essential to the faith, but they're issues we can disagree on and yet remain in fellowship with one another in the same church. And in Romans chapter 15, Paul wraps up this discussion on matters of conscience with a closing challenge. A tough one. He wanted these believers and us today to be reminded of something that Jesus taught. It's a simple message. It's not about you. So let's walk through our text this morning. And as we do, I want to highlight two ways we can directly apply this word to our lives. Let's read first Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of of God. Here's the first challenge I want to give you this morning. Number one, follow Jesus into self-denial for gospel unity. Look at verse one again. Let's remember there were two categories of people Paul was describing in chapter 14. You had the strong and you had the weak and that was not meant to be insulting but the strong was the group of mostly Gentiles who who rightly believed they could eat anything to the glory of, of God. They were embracing this newfound freedom in Christ. And the weak was a group who still felt bound in their conscience to obey the food laws. Paul put himself in that first category of people. Notice, even though he was raised a Jew, he came to see that being a Christian meant he was no longer bound by the dietary restrictions. So he says, we who are strong, he's in this group, and here's his challenge to that group. They have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please themselves. Paul admits here, those in the weak group are struggling. They're bearing something. They're bearing a conscience that's causing them to feel guilty. They're not trying to cause problems or stir up division. Rather, they have genuine concerns about how they should deal with food and drinks that they've always considered unclean. So Paul says to the strong group, hey, your job is not to force them to change their minds or tell them how dumb they are. You're not to cause them to go against their conscience. Your job is to do two things. Bear with them and do not please yourself. That word bear is a word Paul often used to describe the kind of relationship we should have with people in church. It means to carry someone else's burden. To take what they're struggling with and and to place it on yourself. And that really goes hand in hand with not pleasing yourself. You see, our natural inclination is to do what we like. What we want, to follow our own preferences, our own desires, to do what pleases us, what makes us feel good, what brings us comfort. And it's not our natural inclination to instead give that up and seek it for someone else. That's why in my house where I have two little ones, when there's only one cookie left, and one of my children willingly gives it to the other so he or she can have it instead, we are shocked by that. (laughs) Normally, to be fair, Dad gets to eat it, all right? It's only fair. 
But we are. We're shocked and we celebrate that selflessness because we know it's not natural for sinners to do that. And yet Paul says this is the mindset. This is the way we have to live together as Christians in church. So what he says in verse 2. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Our mindset when we come to church, when we gather with other believers, should not be what I want, what I like. Rather, it should be what pleases someone else and what would be for their good. i got to tell you, this is a major issue when it comes to the American church. We live in a consumer society where we are constantly advertised to and catered to. We eat the food we want anytime we want. We watch the shows we want on demand. We buy the stuff we want. It's on our porch in two days or less. We listen to the music we want. It streams on our phone. We find the friends we want. We often live that way Monday through Saturday. Me, 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 me. What I want, what my family want, wants, what my schedule wants, what I need, me, me, me. And then we show up to church on Sunday morning. And they didn't play the music I liked. And that preacher said something I, didn't, I don't agree with. That person said something rude. They looked at me weird. No one talked to me or served me. They're doing what I don't think they should be doing. What I think they're doing, they're not doing. That kind of thinking not only kills your spiritual life, but it kills the life of the church. And we wonder why people hop from church to church. We wonder why the average church attender today shows up once a month. Why most people come and sit for an hour and then find the exit as quickly as they can. And now, why many choose to just stay home and watch online. People say, oh, I I just wasn't getting anything out of it. My kids just didn't think it was fun. It just wasn't my style. Listen, here's why you're not getting anything out of it. Because it's not about you. Church is not about you. We do not come to church to get, we come to give. Yet the goal for a lot of Christians today is to come and to sit and to have nothing demanded or expected of them, to be poured into and to be filled up and to walk away feeling good about themselves, feeling encouraged, feeling fulfilled. And they never realize that they may be going to church not to worship God, but to worship themselves and their feelings. When we come to church... And I'm talking to me too. I'm not above this. When we walk in the door, we have to fight off ourself. We have to lay aside our preferences and our wants. And we have to think, what can I do to serve someone else? To bless someone else? To encourage someone else? What can I do to build up the church rather than me? And look, I I want us to leave feeling built up and encouraged. I'm not saying I want everybody to be here miserable. (laughs) I want people to like and love coming to church, obviously. But my point is, here's what you'll find. You will get more out of something when you put more into it. When people say to me, I'm just just not getting anything out of it. I want to say, hey, well, what are you putting into it? You will leave with a smile on your face when you have dirt under your fingernails. The more you serve and give and do and help and sacrifice, that's where the joy and fulfillment comes from. That's when you get something out of it because you got skin in the game. You're a part of this. This is your family. It's not just an event you attend. That's Paul's message here, but he he didn't make this up. He got it from Christ. Look at verse 3. He says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, 
The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We should not seek to please ourselves because Jesus did not seek to please himself. He's the one we're trying to be like. If anyone could have rightly pleased himself and done whatever he wanted, it's Jesus. All things were made through him and for him. He died for the whole world. He is the king of the universe. Yet listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was and is God, yet he chose to take the form of a servant. Not a king, not a rich man, not a superstar, a servant. And that was displayed most clearly on the cross. That's why Paul quotes here Psalm 69. He does what New Testament authors do. He, he puts the words of David in the Psalms in the mouth of Jesus. And Jesus says, the reproaches of what committed against God fell on, fell on me, on the cross. That's the pattern we see in, in the life of Jesus. It's really the pattern of the whole Bible. Self-denial, sacrifice for others, giving up freedom and comfort for the sake of someone else. As Paul says in Romans 15, 4, he says, All that was written in the Scripture was written to instruct us, to help us. The Bible was written to encourage us, to give us ultimately hope. And then Paul offers this prayer and this challenge. Look at verses 5 through 7 again. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is Paul's prayer for the church. This is his goal for them. They would live in harmony and accord that together with one voice they would glorify God. Paul wanted to see the church unified because Jesus wanted to see the church unified. Why does the Bible emphasize so strongly that the church be unified? Well, we see it right here. Because it glorifies God. God is glorified when his people are together, not just superficially or sitting in the same room with the same church, but actually united in heart and mind and purpose. This is why one day people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, Revelation tells us, will worship God around his throne together. Wouldn't that be amazing? We live in a world that's divided. They want to divide us even more. There's a racial divide. There's economic divide. There's political divide. There's generational divide. There's international divide. So when people from all kinds of backgrounds come together as one, it brings God great glory. It causes people to stop and notice and say, man, only God could do something like that. That's Paul's prayer for us today. As a result, here's his challenge. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. It means first we need to think about how Christ has welcomed us. Think about this in our culture. When, when someone comes to our home and we want to make them feel welcome, what do we do? We cook, right? At least that's what we did in the South. We make a big spread. We put it on the table. We greet them at the door. We smile. We hug them. We say, oh, we're so glad you're here. Come on in. 
Dinner's almost ready. Make yourself at home. Get comfortable. And we do that stuff for people we like, friends, family. But imagine doing that for the person who robbed your home. Yeah, the guy who broke into your house, stole all your stuff, and now he's standing at your front door. And you welcome him in for dinner. Say, hey, here's a bed you can sleep in tonight. Who in their right mind would do that? Yet what Christ has done in welcoming us is even greater than that. Because we did much worse to him. Think about it. We're sinners. We've sinned against God in every way possible. We've diminished his glory. We nailed his son to the cross. And yet he's welcomed us into his family. He made us sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. When we deserved hell, he gave us a seat at the dinner table. We tried to burn his house to the ground, and he said, hey, come on in. You're welcome here. That's the way this verse says we should welcome one another. It's, it's radical. It's different. It's lavish. But if Jesus could welcome me, knowing how messed up I am, knowing how many ways I've sinned against him, then how could I not welcome my own brother or sister in Christ? Well, we just, we just don't see eye to eye on some things. They have different politics or views than I do. Or they're, they're a lot older than me, or you know, they're just way younger than me, or they really talk too much, or uh, they're just so quiet, they don't talk a lot, or we don't get along, or we're too different. I, I just don't know them very well. Welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you. And in order to do that, it starts with self-denial. It starts with getting over yourself and understanding it's not about you and willingly going out of your way to do the hard thing to love and serve and build up someone else. And when we do that, that's where true gospel unity comes from. Unity does not come from sameness. We aren't all going to believe the exact same things on peripheral issues. We aren't all going to have the same political opinions. We're not all going to be best friends. That's okay. We have different styles, different interests, but we do have the same Jesus. And we're called to follow him into self-denial for gospel unity. That's our first point this morning. So how might Jesus be calling you to deny yourself? What would that look like? How might Jesus be calling you to seek out greater unity here in this church? How might you do a better job of demonstrating the grace that God has given you by welcoming those in his church? Let's move on to the second section of this passage, Romans 15, verses 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Notice that first word of verse 8. It's the word for. Paul, Paul's telling us here why Jesus denied himself, why he put others before himself. It was to show God's truthfulness. Jesus was fulfilling God's word. Well, why did he do that? Why does that matter? Well, look at that next phrase, in order. We see it in verse 8 and verse 9, in order. Here's the reason. 
Here's the reason Jesus came. Here's the reason he fulfilled God's word. Two reasons. Number one, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. It's the first one. These were the guys in the Old Testament. Remember the very beginning, Abraham, his son Jacob, his son Isaac. Or I think I got that reversed. You'll recall Paul has talked a lot about these guys in Romans, the promises he'd made to them. They were the original ones to hear this grand plan of God's salvation, and that kind of kicked off the whole storyline of the Bible we find. Everything's building and building so that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's not just showing up randomly, hey, I'm here, here to save the day. No, Jesus comes in fulfillment of all these promises and plans we see throughout the whole Old Testament. Jesus confirmed the promises given to the patriarchs that he would save his people and redeem Israel, that he would be their God forever. There was another element to that promise to Abraham. This was the part the Jewish people didn't understand. Second reason Jesus came, verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus didn't just come to save the Jewish people. He came that all might know God and glorify him. And to prove it, Paul rattles off four straight Old Testament references. Boom, 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 boom. All four, these four come from the four different parts of the Old Testament. So there's a reference from the historical books. Then we have one from the law. Then we have one from the writings. Then we have one from the prophets. He's making a huge, big deal here to show that this is all pointing to one truth. Jesus came that all people, Jew, Gentile, people from every nation might glorify God for his great salvation. That's the message of the whole Bible. Paul tells us that's the ultimate reason that Jesus denied himself. And now, as his followers, he tells us to do the same. He said to his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. To follow Jesus is to deny yourself. Notice the difference in that and what the world says. This is not love yourself, accept yourself, better yourself. No, deny yourself. Give it up and then follow Jesus. Where exactly are we following him to? That's the question we don't often think about. A lot of people say, oh, I follow Jesus, but where are you going? Where are you following Jesus to? Well, Jesus said he was going to seek and save the lost, and he did. He came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross in our place for our sins, he rose from the dead, and the last thing he did was call us to continue his mission of spreading his name over all the world. So our call is to follow Jesus into self-denial for gospel proclamation. If we want to share the gospel and reach the world and see people saved, we have to deny ourselves and lay down our lives. We have to be willing to give up. The American dream of the picket fence and the nice family and fancy stuff. We must be willing to give up our dream job and our dream city and our dream neighborhood. We must be willing to sacrifice everything we have, including maybe even our very lives. And at the very least, we must be willing to sacrifice our personal comfort to share Christ with our neighbors. But there's one thing we need to remember to take with us. Paul closes this section with one more prayer, a prayer I have a feeling that you know well, at least I hope. Why don't you read this with me? Read Romans 15, 13. Say this with me. May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's pretty good. I like that. If we're going to follow Jesus into self-denial for gospel unity and gospel proclamation, we need this prayer. We need to know that God is a God of hope. Do you know we don't have a God of despair or pessimism? We don't have a God who's doom and gloom or woe is me. We have a God of hope because we have a God who can do anything. I don't care what the news says. I don't care what that analyst or commentator says. I don't care how bad things may look. We have a God of hope. So our prayers should be that we're filled with all joy and peace in believing. I don't know about you, but I could sure use some joy and peace. Because left to my own devices, I I trend toward depression and anxiety. Like if I follow the currents of my sinful heart, I'm headed towards despair and fear. But the God of hope can and will fill me with joy and peace. Man, there's so many people out there looking for joy and peace. That's why we're constantly being marketed to about new exciting careers and new relationships and new technologies and new adventures and new hobbies and new financial opportunities and new workout plans and new, 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 new. We're looking for joy and peace. But joy and peace come from the God of hope. And if you seek after him and you pray this prayer, you're going to be filled with it. And let me tell you, God doesn't fill things halfway. How much joy and peace will we get from God? He says all of it. All joy and peace. That doesn't mean all your hopes and dreams are going to be fulfilled. It doesn't mean you're always going to be rich and healthy and happy. This is joy and peace despite circumstance. This is joy and peace that can't be explained anything of any other way except God. And here's what that joy and peace will lead to. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. When you are filled with joy, all joy and peace, you will abound in hope. It's one of the jobs of God, the Holy Spirit, is to produce in us hope. But look, maybe you're here this morning and you don't feel very hopeful today. Maybe if you're honest, you would describe yourself as hopeless. You look at your situation and it's just not getting better. You don't see a way forward or a way out. You have no idea what else to do, where else to go. If that's you, I want you to know you are the perfect candidate for hope. Because hope does not come from within. You don't muster it up and you can't try to force yourself to feel it. And hope doesn't come from a better situation or all your problems solved and everything going your way. Look at where hope comes from. It comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by you. Not by your power. And this is where it all comes full circle. Watch this. It's not about you. And that's a good thing. Because if it were about me, I'd mess it all up. I'd have a reason to be hopeless. I'm powerless to deal with life's challenges. I cannot on my own bring unity to this church or reach our community or bring hope to the world. But if we will take our eyes off ourselves and stop focusing so much on me, and if we will fix our eyes on Jesus and turn our attention to the God of hope and cry out for Holy Spirit power, that's when we will abound in hope. It's not about you. 
It's all about Jesus. And that is good news. Because through him, we can deny ourselves and live out gospel unity and gospel proclamation. And we can demonstrate what we and what all the world needs more than anything. Gospel hope. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning.